North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached, and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's Word preached purely and His sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and His wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, Our Savior, Pagosa Springs, has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. Dr. Coons, last week we had a conversation about academic agents' work, uh, the populist delusion, as well as its connection to uh, your fan, your your fandom. That's not right. The guy you're a fan of, named Burnham, uh, and the Neo Machiavellian school. On and on and on. What the chapter four on a gentleman named Michaels or Michaels really brought into light for me was some thinking about the state and you and I had had conversation a while back about trying to define this concept of, <laughs> yeah. of the state and uh, what Mikkels pulls out of uh, and I'm losing their names uh, Pareto and, and Mosca uh, is an idea that all organizations of any kind are effectively states in miniature and and to me that really helped kind of congeal what the state is. Mm-hmm. Uh, the state is an organization. It's an organization of humans. Humans will do this automatically. We will put ourselves into some form of state. And in that sense, you could think of the family as, again, a, a very small state. Um, and that the other major insight then that's come out of the book so far is that when humans do natively, intuitively, 
trend toward organizing in states, they inevitably are ruled over by a smaller group than the whole. That is, there there is never a majority who imposes their will on a minority. It's always the other way around. And uh, this then will swing back and forth with that minority uh, either acting in a feudal state or a bureaucratic state. In the feudal state, they are vying, they are jockeying for power, and in some ways they are balancing each other's wills against each other as they try to control the majority. In the yeah. bureaucratic state, bureaucratic state, um, they are cohering. They are, they are finding that they work better together than apart, and so the power congeals. And then finally, I think, at least for, for this opening salvo here, um, the the implication is that eventually the bureaucratic state must prevail and then begin to decay, at which point a new feudal state or a pull toward the feudal pole, uh, it, it must arise. And then you're back into uh, kind of a, a reorganization. This gets back to the Fox's Lions things a little bit last time. Um, yeah. I'm just curious, you know, anything you can pull out of that. I'm sure you've thought sure. these through far more than I have already in, in that regard. The bureaucratic state is, for most people, certainly for us, for all our listeners, really our, our only experience of government at, at almost any level, things appear to be, are presented as being, are, are masked as or with the idea that this is for everyone's good and that it is operating in an impartial, fair way. So, for example, the things that I brought up about political constituencies and discussion of guns in the United States of America, that, that would be an example of, of real feuding right <laughs> in american politics that apparently has nothing to do with the bureaucratic hoops you're jumping through in illinois to buy the same gun that i'm buying in colorado or or texas or something right so i think that is also why people conflate liberty with democracy whereas historically the two subjects have the two topics, uh, the two interests, the two pursuits have relatively little to do with each other. And democracy is identified with, practically speaking, a mobocracy very, very often. And it is a well-known fact that a mob is ruled by those calling the shots, not by the mob, because it's in the nature of the mob to be disorganized, incoherent, and powerful all at the same time. So that that reality i think is is one that enough observation produces the question is as we talked about last time not just okay what what is that what is our take about it but what can we do with that information and i think at least one thing that we can do with that information is not to identify what we currently live under with either the intentions of those who founded our political system or with all that is really possible there, but there is, there is a kind of blanketing that the soft totalitarianism, the soft control over increasingly every aspect of life, it, that, that blankets your thoughts, your feelings, your words, such that it seems that anything else is impossible. And that is certainly the last thing that I want the listeners to think. You need to understand how much is possible, especially when the places of creativity, let's say, 
intellectually, politically, financially. When the places of creativity are identified and then you begin to realize what could be possible, not just what is or, or how it is, but what you yourself could do such that you don't end up despairing because you realize that this bureaucracy hasn't, has covered things and, and bureaucracy and a certain impartial, even literally robotic functioning is, is a hallmark of our regime. I mean, it, you are monitored by robots very often. Your, your license plate, when you run a red, your identity, when you check a certain box on a form, all those things are monitored by robots. So <laughs> it is so much a part of our regime that they have created, you know, mechanical slaves to do that very thing that they desire. One of the takeaways I've, I've pulled out of this is the essential need for a shepherd. And, and I choose that word carefully. I think the word leader gets used more often uh, in the yeah, book. Right. Uh, but the, the idea of shepherd as opposed to, and this gets to Burnham, you know, manager, right. that for a state to function, for an organization to do well, uh, it must be shepherded by someone. And it, and it will be, not must. For it to exist, it will be shepherded. For it to do well, it must be shepherded by someone who manages to stave off the uh, inherent human tendency, inclination, to view one's own holding of the staff as the important fact. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and instead uh, to see the the flock and its survival as the important fact. And that's, again, where the, the tension comes to, to be and the bureaucracy tends to see itself as important for its own sake, whereas the feuding tends to have more active purpose uh, and thus inspire the creativity and so forth. Um, the other thing, and this kind of you kind of led to this a little bit with that blanketing thought here, is uh, this idea of, and this is Mosca, I think, of political formula uh, that the way that any shepherd leads, good or bad, will by will be by um, convincing the masses to retain the political formula that they previously had and that is it's it's a mythos it's a story it's a thing that we say because we used to set it and as long as we say it then we're going to be good together and so that that works that's the main work of the shepherd however um eventually when that has become a bureaucratic self-preserving holding one's own power reality yeah. that is when the hypocrisy right. of it is revealed now is the time when a new political formula can arise and i think the position of this book is that we're at such a time where we can have a new myth come about as a story for americana um and then where i would take that right away is like okay so you know forget americana uh what's happening in your congregation right now what stories running the shots there? Where's the shepherd? Is he a shepherd? Does he shepherd with the story that should be outlasting democracy or liberty? Yeah, I mean, I I want to I want to support thinking on all those levels simply because as long as we have all of the people that we do, how whoever they are and however many of them there are inside the borders of the current United States of America, someone has to lead them. Right. So there are there are always local realities. There are intermediate level realities. There are national level realities. And that that is a that is, that is a fact of human existence. I, I think that the the 
I want the local to be focused on. I do want. I do not want it to be a flight into the local. No, no, and that that's not what I'm advocating. I I guess what I'm saying is that. If we aren't able to ask this question about the local yeah. and, and actually tie up our, our boat well, then yeah. we're not going to impact anybody. Correct. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because what you need is on each of those levels, some amount of health. And what you see, for example, where the shepherds of Israel are indicted and the prophets, especially Ezekiel, is very keen on that phrase and the failures of the shepherds of Israel is that all the levels when they fail, fail together, that, that failure in human groups is a practically biological entity in the way that it exists. It's not mechanical. It's not like, okay, swap out this cog, put a new one in and the whole thing is going to turn like it's supposed to. It is like cancer metastasizing. And so it spreads from whatever levels to whatever other levels. I mean, you, you might say, for example, that Hollywood, about which we've talked, is really an intermediate level power. It's not a local power, except in, say, Los Angeles politics, you know, city and county of Los Angeles politics. And it's not a national power in the sense that the United States Department of Defense is. It is an intermediate power. That doesn't matter because it can spread whatever it wants to powers above it or powers below it. Similarly, if the United States is not producing, as we talked about last week, young men who are biologically capable of the rigors of combat, then the United States Department of Defense suddenly has a problem, right? And that has to do with the families they came from and the food that they ate and lots of other things. And all of those levels are interrelated. That is why an ignorance of the local, as well as an exclusive focus on the local, are both impossible because when I begin to look into problems, especially sometimes good things, <laughs> but especially problems, I find that they flow from one level to another, or let's say between channels. So I can't really, you know, dam up, you know, okay, I'm just, I have nothing to do with this. And now I don't have a problem because let's say, for example, right, I, I, I watch practically nothing here, here. Pract yeah, right. I watch practically nothing. That doesn't mean that Hollywood has no effect on my life. Hmm. <laughs> Hollywood has an effect on my life. Every time I talk to almost anybody else, <laughs> Yeah, no, that's <laughs> because right. I either get these, like, I have to explain that I'm not a homeschooler. I went to more public school than they did or the way that they talk or the facial expressions they think are normal or the behavior they think is normal or whatever is all conditioned by their viewing. So, I mean, I, I'm, I can't get away from these. I'm not, I'm not even trying. I'm just saying if I did, I couldn't unless I just chose not to be with other human beings at all. That's an increasingly popular public pose, just misanthropy. I just hate other human beings. I don't think that's a pose that a Christian can take or should or does. We do not hate mankind because our God is a lover of mankind. The fathers are always calling him philanthropos, right? One who is a lover of mankind. So I don't hate them, but just because I'm not engaged in something personally doesn't mean that it doesn't affect me. That's, I mean, that, that is the consumeristic lie that you were sold to sell you, which it didn't even work, not even in California, but to sell you on the idea that gay marriage is fine. Notably, 
nobody actually thought that in any kind of majoritarian way in the United States, not even in California. Okay. But once it was shoved down our throats, the way that that was explained to us is that that's none of your business. Now, obviously, Drag Queen Story Hour, uh, blah, 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 blah. You know, your child is going to become a different sex, all these kinds of things. Those are our business. And we were told that those things were disconnected. Remember, yeah, two facts, were. not and, five. And it, did, it didn't take long. It's back to that generational drift thing. It, it didn't did, take long at all. It did not take long. No. I mean, they're going faster and faster with this stuff. But you were told it wasn't your business what two consenting adults do in their bedroom. Okay. But here's the thing. Actually, it is. <laughs> that's why these things were historically regulated. That's why you have a marriage certificate because they're public matters. Who is married? How? What has come of it? Are those actually your kids? Hmm. Do you get to claim them on your taxes? The reason that we have any remnants of anything like that is because we realize that people's lives are public matters. That doesn't mean that they have to know everything you're doing like they do today because you have an Alexa and you have your phone and whatever it, but it meant that certain salient parts of life were and are public matters because they affect everybody else. They even affect everybody else's private life. That's crazy to think that now your life with Alexa is so private. Even you don't own it. Wow. <laughs> That's crazy. That's right. That's uh, right. <laughs> yeah. Your privacy is outsourced to Alphabet and uh, Meta. I'm still trying to learn the uh, overarching holding company names. Yeah. So right, right. yeah, yep, yeah. They have they have more of your privacy than you do because they remember things about you and your activity, especially on the internet, obviously, that you don't. So that privacy is outsourced, but then there's a denial that the public exists except as a place to celebrate pride month. And last month was, and it's, it's really interesting how even right-wing people get into this. So no right-wing people that I've seen, except maybe whatever, you know what I mean by right-wing? I mean, officially right-wing Southern Baptist convention is not doing pride month, but I bet, I bet you that they or many of their institutions did Asian American Pacific Islander month and women's history month and black history month. Yeah, and all they, the, and, they're, and, they're working on social justice and, and trying to solve yeah. problems of racism right now. I'm right. Sure they are. <laughs> That's right. And so they, they don't, they don't recognize that these are celebrations of constituencies that are equivalent in our regime. It has nothing to do with any historical specificities. It has to do with what our loyal clients of our regime and are therefore promoted and what are not right? There's no, obviously there's no white history month. There's no Christian history month because those groups, especially when combined, but even separately are unreliable politically speaking. And so we're not going to be celebrating them for a whole month. So there's just a, there's just a, I think that that naivete and, and maybe even that duplicity are driven by an inability to understand that what we are dealing with is something that is systemically, holistically threatening, not something where you like pick and choose like, oh, well, I'm just going to watch the good Hollywood movies <laughs> or I'm just going to go to the good public schools. This is a good public school. The issue there is never, and, and the critique of it, whether of what our forefathers called government schools or of what our, or of what our forefathers saw in Hollywood, the critique was never some sort of like, I'm just going to flee from all realities in the world and just hide from them. That was, 
That was never the intention. And that's just a caricature, especially of religious people, that religious people themselves have imbibed and believe about themselves, which is why they self-police precisely on those issues that are generally most threatening to their own children, because they don't want to appear to be bad or weird or something. The issue was always that you do not have the control over what is influencing you that you think you do. Life is not nearly as conscious or rational as you believe it is. And the stuff that you referenced last uh, last episode last week about trust driven by here's the nightly news was a sort of, I mean, I, I find it really hard to even imagine thinking this, although I can see how it could be socially a lot more pleasant than the, like, I have to figure out, am I talking to a man? Am I talking to a woman? Like, what am I, who am I talking to? What am I dealing with? It would be really nice to live in a world in which people sort of, there were kind of like more, like life was just like simpler and interactions were simpler and things were clearer, you know, and what you could say and couldn't say were clearer. That would be nice, but whatever. But that was driven by, I think, a, a public sense first produced by newspapers and then later produced by television, that what was being said was what was happening. Mm -hmm. And therefore, life is almost entirely, if not entirely, conscious and rational rather than mysterious, let's say. Because if you believe that life is mysterious, let's say, for example, you hold a traditional Christian conviction about mankind's sinfulness and depravity. That's, that's a mysterious thing. It's not, and by mysterious, we don't mean like you can't see it. That's one of the easiest Christian doctrines to observe is original sin, especially a very robust Augustinian Western idea of original sin. It, you can see it. You can see how messed up people are or how they can't even explain themselves to themselves, let alone to God or anybody else. You can see it. Great. Fine. By mysterious, we mean You don't have control over it, and they don't really have control over it. And the only way that anyone conquers over those things, over those trials in his life, is through the mysterious grace and love of the Holy Spirit, right? That's it. Because his evil is mysteriously destructive to himself, right? What does Paul say? I do not understand the things I do, okay? (laughs) And if you don't think about life that way, you think like, People are who they present themselves to be. Politicians are, you know, untrustworthy, but only relatively less untrustworthy than everyday people who are pretty much utterly trustworthy, right? That that, that was in America where young people could hitchhike and not be killed. Mm-hmm. So there's something like kind of nice about that, but I'm not going to get nostalgic about it because I think it was basically mistaken, mm-hmm. mistaken. Not evil necessarily in people's attitudes, but mistaken. And it did not, it did not allow them to see what was actually occurring in their midst. Yes. Yeah. So not evil, but unrealistic. Yeah. And naive. So that that which is evil was able to take advantage of it quite quickly. Right. Quite quickly. Exactly. Yeah. So shifting. To agriculture revolution at modernity's heart. Can we do that? Is that a seg? Uh, that's not <laughs> oh, a seg yeah. at all. No, that, well, it's you call it a segue. It's a segue. That's that's yeah. all this goes. And we'll segue too. Yeah. Now in from <laughs> wait, this just in, you know. Well, this is yeah. This is to go back to the idea of history from below, and we'll do a little bit more. Let's say pure history this week. We wanted to set it up last week 
in the frame of thinking about how life functions on a day-to-day basis, something that we said Carol Quigley does relatively little of. And we're doing that because like what we just said about people's consciousness, especially of evil, it is important to understand how people live their everyday lives because those kinds of things have both conscious and unconscious effects on people, right? People want to go on vacation desperately to exotic places, partly because their everyday lives are to them grinding or miserable or dreary or whatever the case may be. So if we look at the everyday lives prior to agricultural revolutions, of which we're going to name a couple different this week, then we're, we're seeing everyday lives vastly different than our own, as different as the photos from hypothetical from 1922 and 2022 were last week. So when we think about whatever we mean by modernity, the conditions of life, especially involving technology, energy, energy capacity, going beyond wind, water, and human and animal muscle power, as we've talked about before, at the heart of any revolution that would take place in any country, we'll talk about two different kinds, you have an agricultural revolution. Because without that basic biological change in the land's capacity to produce, you simply will not have the human beings necessary to either create or to sustain the systems of modernity. We mentioned this a little bit with medical practice last week, but I would think also about the lack of engineers to maintain systems very often in post-colonial Africa, such that they end up, this is part of the dependence on the Chinese, because the Chinese have technological capabilities that places like maybe Angola or uh, Zimbabwe, formerly Rhodesia, have not had since colonial government ended in the 70s, the 80s, whatever the case may be, given the country. So when you think about, okay, well, we're going to have this, or we're going to have that, or we're going to have these paved roads, we're going to have these, this energy infrastructure, you need somebody to do that. A really contemporary example in modern America is the relative lack of people to go into, maybe partly because of interest, but partly because, partly also because of sheer sizes of generations to replace baby boomers at things like machining, mill writing, lots of relatively skilled trades that we simply don't have people because maybe they're going to college or Maybe they don't have a job at all. They don't want a job. They're lethargic. Maybe they have this other thing they want to do with their life. Who knows? Or the baby boomer simply didn't have any kids or whatever the case may be. The child died of a fentanyl overdose. Who knows, right? But all of those things are causing breakdowns in systems of production and of distribution that I think will only increase, as we talked about last week increase over time. So when we think about not just the creation of modern systems of life, which you could sum up as the modern city where all of it's present at the same time, things shipped from afar, technological capacities, constant supply of energy, options for almost anything that you could want to make a choice about in your life, down to the modernity present on a very rural farm in America today, which includes 
streaming cable services and constant energy and lots of other things that were unimaginable on most rural farms hundred years ago. All of that is possible because of agricultural production. So in order to get where we are and to stay where we are, we need the kind of production that we have had, especially in the West for the past hundred years, because the West is the hinge point for both its own revolutions, which we're going to call revolutions directly lived, as well as the agricultural revolutions in third world countries or even second world countries, which we're going to call revolutions exported. Okay. So just go right into those. Explain, yeah. explain why those are different. And why so those, are, those are my terms. Quigley believes that agricultural revolutions have occurred in different countries at different times. So he means something different than I do. I don't, I don't see the fact that, you know, eventually, you know, water management is going to become much more closely monitored in a place like Vietnam or Japan for the production of rice as revolutionary in the same way that the mass provision of endless food choice is for people in almost any city throughout the world, which is a result of Western inventive processes. So when I say a revolution directly lived, I largely mean agricultural revolutions in Western countries. So it could be a change in how a crop is sown. It could be a change in how a crop is reaped. It could be a change in threshing. It could be a change in the crop itself, like genetic modification of seed. Okay. It could be a revolution in implements. And we'll talk about some of these with some specific examples, but those directly lived revolutions are almost entirely the product of the West with Japan as sort of an exception to the rule in this case, Japan being exceptionally inventive, I think obviously and naturally in the production of rice. And some of that has had overlap with rice production in other, on other continents, but those directly lived revolutions are ones that therefore have knock-on effects for everybody else. The first of those, the first of those revolutions that we could identify, let's say with rising nascent, about to be born modernity is what gets called in the study of plants, botany, the Columbian exchange. That is the exchange of especially plants between the old world and the new world as a result of Columbus's voyage voyages to the new world. That change is that Columbian exchange is largely a change in the diet of the old world. Okay. So something to notice is that if you're talking about a revolution, even in a cuisine, okay, what, what are people actually eating? Not just, not just what is possible, not just what do they grow, but what do they actually eat? You're always thinking about not just what is traditional, but how traditions became traditional. So obviously, you know, there's not a ton of tomato sauce in Italian cuisine prior to the Colombian exchange, because the tomato is a new world plant. There's not a ton of potatoes in Northern European cuisines, like say Prussia or Ireland or something prior to the Colombian exchange, because the potato in all its varieties is a new world plant. Corn gets exported from Latin America, let's say Central America or, or North America to Spain and becomes relatively quickly in both Spain and France in the 17th century, the kind of starvation food of the poor. That is, it's, it's your basic subsistence food for the poorest people in the country. Now that corn is not in 
Spain in the 17th century going to be processed in the same way that it's processed in Mexico, let's say, by Indians, right? They're not going to have the same processes. They're going to use it in the same way. Creamed corn is not a product of, you know, let's say uh, Aztec cuisine or something, but those common plants are a result of a revolution in agriculture, especially for poor people. These new world plants are at first often thought to be unfit for human consumption. And then eventually they become the food of the poor. So meat and potatoes, the reason that that means sort of like basic, a basic subject, a basic handling, or even just basic food literally in America is because America is a not, not maybe not largely Northern European descended, but certainly Northern European culturally dominant. We speak English country. And so meat and potatoes, that's basic food, but that's only really basic food in the British Isles from about the 17th, maybe the 18th century. So that Colombian exchange, I'm counting as the first revolution. It's just me, right? You can disagree. I'm counting as that, that first revolution because what, that's, what that enables Europe to do is to provide for its population in a way that is unique. So Europeans are going to go from a relatively small percentage of the world population and not having nearly as many large cities as East Asia does in, say, the 15th century to, by the 18th century, dominating the number of large cities worldwide, let's say over whatever threshold you want to say, you want to say 500,000, 1 million, whatever, Europe is going to have most of those. And the population of Europe will absolutely explode from 1650 onward. And that is partly because Europe solves a problem through the Columbian exchange and then through obviously like wise use of what the exchange provides they're going to solve a problem which is insurmountable in most of human history, which is how do we provide for most people to live? The elites generally don't have that problem. And, and I wouldn't be talking about food at the relative length that we're going to do it on this show. If I thought that, you know, if this were a, you know, world economic forum sponsored program, I have heard rumors that I am paid by Peter Thiel to produce this program. Dude, can I'm, I get some of that? It's not fair. You call well, them out, maybe, man. Yeah, maybe later. But I am certainly not sponsored by Klaus Schwab. So um, Klaus Schwab is is a member neither of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church nor <laughs> our Savior Lutheran Church. For sure, didn't see him at either place. But you know, the world, the folks at Davos don't need to worry about starvation ever. They they don't. Yeah, they were paying um, like not, fifty bucks for a burrito, from what I remember. Yeah, they they were doing that. We have much cheaper, much better burritos in Denver, but they, they, they don't because elites, elites do not starve to death unless they are in the position of not being elites very suddenly anymore. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. They tend to die by violent um, yes. mob uprising if they're yes. going to, yeah. Yeah. They live out their days or they die violently. Th those are the options. Starvation or even, and this is a little hard for people to understand, but when you, when you hear about a famine in the Bible, you, you, what you're probably dealing with is not an absolute utter absence of any food whatsoever. You're probably dealing with an absence or a relatively high lack of staple foods, 
That's, that's what you're, that's what you're dealing with. That's why people are going to move around because they're going to move somewhere relatively close by that is going to be therefore just a little bit different climatically and maybe not lacking in that, that staple food that is needed. Right. So the withholding, that's that's why it can also be called paraphrastically the withholding of bread, right? Because you're, you've lost that staple. It's not that absolutely nothing is growing. Most likely that would be a, a, an actual desert. It's that you have lost the staple. So if you lose the staple, if the staple fails, then you have an actual famine, right? It doesn't mean that nothing else is growing. So when we talk about the potato famines, which are a series of successive harvest failures, in Ireland in the 19th century, what we're talking about is a staple failure. We're not saying nothing else grew. And we're not even saying that everyone had to starve to death, right? We're saying that whether it's the book of Ruth, and that's why they, you know, Ruth's eventual in-laws leave Israel and go to Moab, or the Irish leave Ireland in the 1840s and go to largely America, but also Australia and Canada, why is that happening? It's not because you can't grow anything or that you couldn't survive necessarily. It's that your staple has failed. And those staple foods, which are usually, which are for pretty much any human society, any time with a couple largely polar exceptions are going to be some sort of grain in some measure. When the staple food fails, root crop in the case of potatoes, when the staple food fails, that's when you really have a problem and it seems like an agricultural revolution and the populations and the cities dependent on that revolution. That's when those things are in crisis. Hmm. So I'm not, I'm not worried about there's this shortage or the port of Shanghai is backed up in this way or this or that, or I I'm not really worried about that except as a harbinger of potentially other things. The thing that I'm, you know, that I'm thinking about in the relatively near future is, are we going to have production of the things that people are actually eating compromised? Because that would be in our extremely industrialized, highly processed food system. That would be the equivalent of staple failure because you're going to get especially prior to this, this agricultural revolution predicated on Colombian exchange, but also having to do with a couple other factors we'll talk about this week or another week. When you have famines after 1650 in the West, they are extremely infrequent and they are predicated on monocropping that is really unwise, but in which we have been... <laughs> rather highly engaged in the past 50 years in the West. Yeah. 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 So Ireland jumps from kind of a standard, especially the British Isles, your, your major, your major grain that people are actually consuming in quantities is, is either depending on the region is either wheat or especially in Scotland and Ireland is, is often oats, right? I mean, oatmeal is like a staple when that gets exchanged for potatoes because of the relative ease that you can grow potatoes and these these new world vegetables are also helpful because they 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 grow relatively quickly and produce relatively abundantly they jump into as it were monocropping and people then become as they think about what's going wrong with the potatoes they become desperate because it, it's They've been, they've been using potatoes for not 
really long, all that long in the whole scheme of things, but it's all they know. So there are people doing things like, because what happens with the potato blight is that things rot, maybe even after harvesting. So what you thought was going to be worthwhile is within days, completely rotten. I mean, sort of horrifying stories, but folklore begins to spread about here's how you can reverse potato blight. So you can, you can have potatoes that are essentially black with this blight and you're going to turn them their correct color again and make them edible, or you can eat the inside, but you can't eat the outside or whatever. I mean, all kinds of sort of urban legends, fake news, <laughs> for lack, fake news. Yeah. Fake news for lack of a better term, you know, about how to make sure that this revolution endures. And it's the same double investment, reinvestment, doubling down in, you know, gambling terms on something that is already failing that we've seen people do with COVID. So we shouldn't be surprised to see people do this with other revolutions in behavior, especially food. You know, what, what do I eat? How do I get nourishment? There is a shocking absence of creativity or of thinking about, well, 200 years ago, rural Ireland was not completely covered with potato fields. What were we eating? Why don't we try that? No, there's, there's denial from the British government. There is self-denial about what is actually occurring among many farmers. And then finally, when they realize that they can't really raise potatoes and feed their families, because you're really talking about subsistence agriculture here. You're not, this isn't a commercial crop failure generally, right? This is like, I need to feed my family. How do I do that? When that fails, what people would rather do than be creative is to just go somewhere else where, you know, if we move to new, if we sail to whatever, New Jersey, the potatoes won't fail there. And that did work. The problem here is, and don't think about this just in food terms, dear listener. The problem is if what you're doing or what other people are doing with you or to you or for you is failing, and then they're doubling down and doubling down, or you're doubling down, you also have to think about, is there anywhere that you can flee? Because I, I think that a lot of people's thinking is predicated on two different options. One is, no, I will make this work. Okay. I will turn the blighted potatoes whole and clean and pure again. Or alternatively, the other thing that I'm going to do is just go somewhere else. And then the things that aren't working here at all will work there. And the, something to notice is that's sometimes true. Something also to notice is sometimes that's not true. There are plenty of people that die in Ireland. And so when you're, when you're thinking about, you're like backed into a corner, especially by a failure of something previously reliable, you really have to keep in mind maybe the problem is what I'm doing. Not that, you know, this time it just didn't work, but next time it will. There's a certain desperate hopefulness that people have, even about things that are failing right in front of their eyes. Holistic farming uh, is where we yeah. got to go, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because that those revolutions that are directly lived, especially in Western countries, also, eventually in Ireland, they do sort some of these things out. There's a similar failure of uh, grapevines in France later on in the 19th century due to a parasite uh, brought from the United States to which the American grape is immune, but from which vinifera, which is the, the European grape, the old world grape, is not immune and 
they figure that out eventually, but after massive death and, and loss of a great deal, that that provision, that that revolution directly lives, like we're going to have enough and we don't have to worry about it. And famine is a word that we really only use in church in obscure prayers that we're just using because the prayers are really old. Kind of, you know, we're wearing, you know, Roman clothing when we wear vestments and we're praying about famine and both of them are equally kind of unreal in the rest of the outside world in our daily lives. Fragility enters in here, especially, I think, and this will set us up for think about farming holistically in revolutions that are exported, because when you hear about grain shortages, because it's, you know, less is being planted in Ukraine and still less is being exported or, or it's hard to get things out of Russia or whatever. You probably don't need to be directly worried about that in the United States. Fuel prices are much more of a direct concern to you in the United States with our agriculture than what is going on specifically in Ukraine. What you need to worry about with Ukraine is that that is the way that the agricultural revolution is exported, especially to third world countries where provision has never since their populations have, have exploded, has never been entirely or even mostly self-provision. So that is a difference between agricultural revolutions undergone in the first world and those undergone in the third. When the third becomes destabilized, let's say food-wise, right? then what you're dealing with is instability, the like of which you haven't seen for a very long time. And that will obviously have an effect in a place like Guinea or in a place like Bolivia, but it will also have an effect on first world countries because not only our logistic systems and our food provision systems, but also our political systems and our flows of human beings are interconnected. This is, I think, the role of the phrase that we use jokingly about the Okies from the Dust Bowl last episode, but the phrase climate migrants or climate refugees. I don't think that that phrase actually sincerely exists because we all believe earnestly, sincerely, and entirely that Manhattan as well as Mauritius are both going to be underwater in like 10 years if we don't stop like killing the planet, right? I think that that phrase is a euphemism for people who cannot, but are used to being provide, who cannot provide for themselves, but are used to being provided for. And that is a biological basis of third world cities, especially that could be removed, especially with the fragility of logistical systems for food that we're seeing in the case of the Ukraine right now. If they can't be provided for, this will be a much bigger scale version of the problem that I mentioned earlier with, you know, who are the engineers that are going to staff this, you know, power plant in South Africa or whatever the case may be, right? So if they can't provide for themselves, then we have a problem consequent upon what I think is a failure over time. And the failure over time is to think about, we talked about this last episode as well as earlier this episode in other contexts. It's a failure to think about one's life and specifically here, the calling of farming holistically, meaning that you accept that this is not a game of simply chemical inputs and outputs, 
or genetic engineering inputs, and then desired economic outputs. Farming has to be responsible to everything about its own environment. So I'll give you an example of something that has changed drastically in how we live. And that'll give you a sense of how vastly different our highly specialized, highly fractured, relatively very small agricultural sector is from earlier years. So today, if you ask an American, you know, do you drink alcohol? And they say, yes. Then your, your question might be like, do you, do you like beer or wine better? Or do you like hard liquor or, or what do you like? Or what do you usually drink or what do you prefer? And generally, certain, certainly under a certain income level, what they're drinking is going to be relatively speaking mass produced, regardless of whether it's wine or beer or whatever. And that mass production is going to involve ancient processes, highly mechanized, and maybe even in some ways, like the addition of certain rice additives to a lot of beer, commercially produced oh, beer, and, cheap beer. Yeah. It corn. makes it more crisp. It's, yeah. it's for the crisp flavor. They told me that when I toured Budweiser, they, they swore. <laughs> <it>. <laughs> the crisp flavor. That's good. Who knows, right? Yeah, I know it, it was a lie. I'm very, very certain <laughs> of it. But those, I mean, those, those inputs are unrecognizable, sometimes in nature and definitely always in scale to our ancestors. In early America, really the alcoholic drink that people are drinking vastly most commonly is cider, apple cider specifically. Well, horn transaction, huh? Yeah. And, and what, what, what's going on there is that you're taking something that grows pretty much in any of the 13 colonies, unlike say European grapes or, you know, obviously nobody's drinking sake. Nobody's even brewing rice beer in South Carolina where they're growing lots of rice. They're, they're drinking cider because they can. Okay. So on their lives, even at the relatively advanced level of agriculture that many of them are practicing, life is not really commercialized. So they're not really, they're not really producing for export. They're producing for domestic consumption and they're making what they domestically consume themselves. And what, what they're making is at varying levels of alcohol content, something that is refreshing, usually just more interesting, but also has, and this plays into a really interesting book called Folk Medicine by uh, a doctor who worked in rural Vermont for a long time, retired, I think in the 1950s, DC Jarvis wrote a book called Folk Medicine. And he identified the role of, in, in connection with each other, apples, apple cider vinegar, and apple cider, whether sweet or hard, in people's health regimens in Vermont. And it's all just observation. It's, it's not, it's not laboratory based. He's not observing something under a microscope. He's watching what people do and how they traditionally handle things. How, for example, they will drink apple cider vinegar in their water, which gives it both taste, but also higher mineral content. And then how they supplement the minerals that they intake by chewing different plants that they know at different times of the year in order to make sure that they have certain ailments or difficulties covered or just 
you know, some of them know why this is happening. Some of them just know that they feel better when they chew this or they, they feel better when they eat an apple a day, but this is where the saying an apple a day keeps a doctor away. And the product of that growth of apples, which is very natural to the climate and can be done domestically and you're not paying somebody for really, and are grown from rootstock available from your neighbor for probably no price. Those things make you self-sufficient. Okay. So you don't, you don't really, and, and he, I mean, he's a medical doctor. He says, I mean, his role within that system of what gets called folk medicine, his role is correction of major difficulties that people can't, I mean, they have an everyday way of consuming food that is healthy for them. His role is to augment that or to provide, let's say major course corrections when someone is way out of whack, but he's not there to provide health to them. He's not in a phrase that didn't exist in the 1950s. He's not a health care provider. He is a doctor. He doctors people when they are very sick in a way that their regular food intake, especially of things like apples and fresh caught seafood, as well as game. And then the you know breads that they raise when that just completely breaks down for whatever reason, or you fell off a cliff and broke both your legs or something. That's what the doctor is for. He's not there to provide health. And that distinction is predicated not so much on, you know, a total revolution in agriculture as an understanding of agriculture is there to provide food and food is there to provide health. The doctor is not there to provide health. Food does that. And if the food is correctly taken, in this case, in conjunction with, you know, 200, 300 years of this is what we did and it worked, <laughs> then you will be healthy, right? He talks about lifespans and also how people in different parts of the state, small state, nice sample population, people in different parts of the state live longer or less based on how well the soils produce. I mean, it's it, they don't have to make some sort of big sort of hippie like effort to be connected to the land. They just are, they just are. He even says we have kind of a calcium deficiency in our soil in Vermont, which may be why we're shorter than other people of similar populations in upstate New York. Really? I mean, it's an interesting hypothesis, right? But it all says that your health and your life are provided biologically by the food that you bring in, which is provided obviously by the agricultural efforts put forth. When that, it just isn't even being done by you, okay, which is not just third world countries, it's like most Americans, when it's not even being done by you, let alone what is being done, when it's not even being done by you, it seems inevitable that your concept of health would be way out of whack and disconnected from your food, largely, because that connection is not evident. You're not like, oh, I chew this and then I get this mineral. Your sense is like, I buy this and then I can have this health or whatever it is that I'm looking for, or the happy feeling I get when I eat all this cake or whatever it is that you want. Yeah. Cake makes me sick now, but that, <laughs> that's what happens when you stop eating it long enough Yeah, uh, right. is, is you start, but I think what, what I would pull out of that or was just thinking about, um, is how much my carnivore experiment experiment has led me to, I'm still consuming food. I buy from somebody else. Um, but I am very much aware of how, what goes into me, does impact my health. It, yeah, it is right. a direct one-to-one. -one. It is not a matter of what I like 
what I like has nothing to do with it. Now, sadly, what I like, because I grew up on it, um, makes me sick when I eat it. And what's amazing is how unaware of that I was while I was eating nothing but it. Um, and, uh, how much damage was done to my body at the time through it. Um, and this does kind of dovetail back into this idea of, you know, meat and potatoes mm-hmm. with the, the recognition that what the potato did was made the meat go further. And what we have now is just eat potatoes, people. And there's a very different mindset there again, uh, wherein you are and it's not even potatoes right it's potato chips uh fried in seed oils right so you're kind of stacking the the two things you're stacking the profitability of the mass marketing and then you're stacking the uh the degenerative nature of it as as poison to you you know as as not healthy um and so uh um, i don't know where i'm going to go with this other than again that recovering a holistic understanding of your nutrition that the food is the best medicine and if you're not feeling well the place to start is your food not yeah, say right. an injection right, right. um th- that is is absolutely huge how i would then get to the point from where you know and i and this is an open question for me still and as mm-hmm. a pastor it's not really my primary agenda at the moment and and maybe never will be but but how do i get to the place where now uh, I am husbanding the food that I know my body is going to respond well to in a way that is, um, uh, again, holistic is, is providing more than one option, right? So, so for example, again, yeah. r- ruminants are just, they're, they're the bomb. If you don't eat ruminants, I don't know what you're doing. Um, they're, they're the best. And so that means sheep, that means deer, that means cows. They're just, they're just great. They're so good for you. Um, well, you know, trying to just start up a cow farm, not so easy, um, uh, famine doesn't hit the same way, but you definitely have issues of them dying. You have issues of rustling, in fact, taking place these days, especially with small family farms. People come steal your cows. So there's all sorts of other matters that come into, like, even if I want to do this, even if I want to begin to be part of a community that does this, um, I'm, I'm far too fragile already. I mean, there's just, there's no, there's no place to just put a stake in the ground and try. Uh, it, I am stuck on what, what's your line here? Yeah. Commercialization. I still must rely on Costco. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the, the turn to commercialization is, is a turn. What I mean by that is a turn in what we consume on a daily basis. Commercialized crops are of course, very much present in early America. They're just not generally anything to do with human consumption. Your heavily commercialized crops are first of all, tobacco, and then later rice, sometimes consumed by humans, generally not in the United States, rice, indigo, which is used for dye, and then cotton, most famously. But those commercial crops, you can see in each case involve both massive labor forces, which is why slavery flourishes in the parts of America conducive to growing those crops. And commercialization is going to produce systems of managerialism, as we talked about earlier, that non-commercialized crops do not. So this is a, this is a relative thing. It's not that no farmer ever sold a bushel of wheat in, I don't know, Rhode Island before 
we began to have, you know, giant tractors and genetically modified crops or something in the 20th century. But it means that his primary, let's say, manner of farming or the vastly most common manner of farming in the United States historically, even in some cases down to the 20th century, was really self-provision and very local provision. One way to think about this or to, or to notice this is maybe ask your grandparents, find a history book. What was this suburb near this major city in the year 1940? I will bet you that in the vast majority of cases, that suburb, or in some cases, entire regions now utterly changed like Silicon Valley, were really just places of agricultural provision for larger metropolises. So Silicon Valley was at the time the Valley of the Heart's delight for its abundance of provision of especially produce, right? Just really beautiful, right? Really, really just bucolic place. That was to provide, you know, food, and not just for itself, but for San Francisco and Oakland. It's a short supply chain. It goes fast. It goes away fast, but you're going to have lots more, let's say, variety in the food. It's raised relative to today pretty organically, and it's going to go away fast. So supply chain short, you're eating fresh stuff. You're going to get more nutrients from that fresh stuff. And sometimes you're going to eat a misshapen pear and that's okay because, you know, it doesn't have to sit in the grocery store for a month or something. Ew, and can you take the skin off? Please. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, so when we talk about commercialization, we're talking about that shift that's going to start in a variety of ways. So we'll begin to lay these out this week and we'll have to just leave it for later on, which is fine. Those, those different shifts in how food is produced that are going to enable a guy who raises sugar beets to make it just raising sugar beets or just raising corn, or just doing corn and soybeans, or just doing pigs, or just doing cows. Whatever it is that is being raised can be commercialized, and therefore, in order to be best commercialized, it's going to be specialized. So holistic thinking about what should be produced and how it should be consumed is going to seem weird, maybe even to some of our listeners, because it is so alien to a world that is so heavily commercialized in every aspect, right? You, you correctly identified that it's not just that, you know, the potato is being consumed or that the potato is being consumed as a potato chip. It's that we are repurposing a seed oil from a completely different process in order to fry the potato chip. Mm -hmm. You know, we're taking something in the case of linseed oil, which was formerly just a constituent really of paint. <laughs> and a machine lubricant. And now it's in your food because we can reuse it in this way, right? With FDA approval. So those kinds of things are really so utterly commercialized and specialized and biochemically determined that the idea that you would just like drink apple cider vinegar because your grandpa did, and he was doing pretty great, you know, or the idea that you would want to eat something that came from close by or whatever that just, I mean, it, those are like boutique consumer choices. Those are like hippie choices. It's almost like predictable demographics that even have those ideas. And the reason for that is that they have made 
stop me if you've heard this before, they have made what was once natural, common, and obvious into something that is unnatural, uncommon, and strange. Hmm. And you have to make an expensive consumer choice even just to have it. You want to have like food that's as fresh as what your grandparents ate when they were 10 years old? You're going to have to pay a lot. So in food, we're seeing the same process that we see in things like, I don't know, driving around. <laughs> what was what was what's common and easily obtainable for, I don't know, 79 cents a gallon is now it's going to be $6 a gallon and you're not going to do it very much. Yeah, you're certainly going to do it without clear necessity. Yeah. It's not going to be a, a thing you just kind of hop in the car and go. It'll be what right. you do because you have to do it. Right. Uh, can you can you give us a hat tip on implements for everything? Where was that going to go? Yeah, this will set us up for next week because I'll give some specific examples, I suppose. But let's just set it up this way, is that there are changes. There are pretty big changes in sowing and reaping, especially, that are going to speed up and expand American agriculture massively. And this will happen in the Eastern states long before anyone thinks about making Iowa or Nebraska what they are today, agriculturally speaking. So those, those processes, the idea that you should rotate crops, all of those things that are pretty much all in place by 1815 do not matter nearly as much as something else that occurs in American agriculture that is vastly more important. And it's going to change the pace, as we talked about with other parts of industrial society. It's going to change the pace of American agriculture and thus the variety of what's going to be available to people to eat. And that is mechanization. So we're going to go from, you can take a picture from early America and set it next to a medieval picture of the same agricultural process. And it's not just that the two things are recognizably the same. It's that sometimes the tools are identical. So you're saying, okay, this is how we reap grain, this grain, uh, wheat, let's say in the 12th century. And this is how we do it in the very early 19th century. And it's the same way. I mean, the clothes are different, you know, those kind of like, you know, snood kind of hoods that people apparently wore in the middle ages, you know, they're, they're wearing straw hats in early America. So the headgear is different, but everything else looks exactly the same. About 50 years after 1815, and certainly let's say 70 years after 1815, the way that that very same grain is harvested on that very same farm in, I don't know, Connecticut is so unrecognizable. And this is a process in agriculture that will then be, I think, exported to all kinds of facets of our lives. That is that our lives, even with the very same things, are unrecognizable to our grandparents. And so the way that, you know, reaping is going to occur or that the threshing of the grain will occur, or even the scale on which the grain is stored or where the grain is shipped via railroad. It's that mechanization of each of the processes of agriculture, as well as what happens after it's the pro that product is sold, that's going to make agriculture massively scalable in a way that it was not before. Be diligent to know the state of your flocks and attend to your herds for riches are not forever nor does a crown endure to all generations. 
When the hay is removed and the tender grass shows itself and the herbs of the mountains are gathered in, the lambs will provide your clothing and the goats the price of a field. You shall have enough goat's milk for your food, for the food of your household, and the nourishment of your maidservants. Solomon, son of David. You're listening to Brief History of Power. You know where to find us or you wouldn't be here.